Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bob Woodward joins us, of course, with the Washington Post and 19 books across a storied career. Rage is the book. It is wonderful. It is well-deserved. And what I know, Bob Woodward, if you have been out on the interview trail, I saw the Jeff Goldberg interview at the Atlantic and with Mr. Swan over at the Axios uh, in the recent hours. I want to focus today, Bob Woodward, on this historic moment, the debate, and also look back to Richard Nixon and the tapes of another time. As you know, Bob Woodard, Michael Rosenwald can stop you cold. He stopped me cold a year ago with that photograph over the shoulder of Sam Irvin. And there was John Dean testifying at the Watergate hearings. There were tapes then and tapes now. Did you know, as you taped President Trump, that it would have an impact much akin to what we saw from the Watergate hearings? Uh, no, I certainly didn't. And in fact, I was thinking uh, not of releasing the audio. And Jamie Gangel at CNN and my wife, Elsa Walsh, uh, persuaded me, no, uh, in this era when people distrust everything, especially the media, uh, Trump's voice is the most recognizable voice in the world, perhaps. Put it out and then people can hear it for themselves. Uh, even uh, after doing this for 50 years, you learn things about how to communicate. And quite honestly, I didn't realize that at the time. We've now released 38 clips. Uh, I think my assistant, Steve Riley, still, still has eight hours and 30 minutes uh, in the can uh, we will release uh, things that might become relevant. For right. instance, when the Supreme Court case uh, issue came up, who Trump was going to nominate that he had uh, the opportunity to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We dug into the tapes and found a number of things that were quite relevant that Trump said about his relationship with Mitch McConnell and Trump's uh, very passionate drive to change the federal judiciary. All right, Bob Woodward, in the final days, not all the president's men, but in the final days, there is a moment where Barbara B. Conable, who you say had puritanical intensity, had to tell Nixon it was over. The Senate Republicans today seem in no way related, whatever anybody's politics, seem to be in no relation to the Barber Connables and the Howard Bakers of another time. Tell us of your surprise at the action of Senate Republicans in the recent months. Well, in, in a way, it's not surprising because they've been supporting the president uh, in, in some cases quite blindly, and it's almost on automatic pilot. Uh, as I quote Jared Kushner in uh, my book, Kushner being the president's son-in-law, uh, effectively, in a practical way, the White House chief of staff, uh, I quote Kushner saying that Trump executed a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And I think that's exactly uh, what happened. Uh, the hostile takeover is 
in a political sense, total control. People do, people in the, the Senate particularly do not want to cross the president and get mm -hmm. on his bad, bad side. As we know, if you get on his bad side, he'll tweet about you or say um, almost anything about anyone. So people are protecting themselves, I think, not just politically, but emotionally. Right. They don't want to go into the arena with Trump. Bob Woodward, the Republican Party was reportedly dead after the challenges of Richard Nixon. Do the Republicans now risk being the Whigs after the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Do the Republicans after Trump, whether it's one term or two terms, do they risk being a party that disappears? Well, that's what we're going to find out uh, in you know 30 plus days, the November 3rd election, or at least we're going to get a glimpse of it, whether we're going to get a final outcome. Uh, is also in doubt. I don't like, see, one of the things uh, in our business, there's too much predicting and uh, people really don't know the future. My take on what's going to happen November 3rd is uh, anything can happen. Trump can win, Biden can win. There can be total confusion and chaos for not just days, but maybe weeks or God help us longer about who's going to be the next president. And uh, I very much think if you, you look at this, and this is my analysis of Trump, he has a responsibility, as he once told me in one of my many interviews with him for this book, that the job of the president is to protect the people. He has an obligation to tell the truth. And I think he has a moral responsibility to look out for people. And uh, on this election issue, I mean, it's, it's the core of democracy, voting. He should be up there instead of saying, oh, it's going to be chaos. Who knows what, when we'll count the votes, how we'll count the vote. It is indeed a mess on the surface, but his job as the president should be to repair the problem or at least try to come up with some solutions with the Democrats. So, I mean, the, the idea, yeah. I mean, go up to 30,000 feet and look down and realize, my God, we are ed entering this election period, election day, election month. God knows how long it's going to be with this not just uncertainty about who's going to win, but the uncertainty of the process. Yeah. It's, well, um, Bob, it's like going, taking your car to have it repaired and you go in to pick it up and you say, did you check this and that? And I say, oh, no, uh, you know, well, we didn't. We, you know, we just kind of do. I, I mean, it's well, Bob, it's a unacceptable mess. Sorry. No, 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 please. Uh, one thing when you talk about the moral obligation of President Trump, there is a question about the moral obligation of journalists. And this was one uh, response to your book. People were saying, if you knew that President Trump understood the danger of COVID, why didn't you get it out there sooner? Have you been surprised by the degree to which President Trump's uh, presidency has put into the limelight the morality of the media and thrown that into question? Well, look, look we're, we should be accountable, but uh, 
There's no one who's read my book and the details of the reporting process who thinks that I could have put something out because there was nothing to put out, frankly. I thought Trump was talking about China in February. All the discussion was about China. Tony Fauci, the head of infectious disease for this country for, I guess, the last 40 plus years, was saying at the end of February, people, don't worry about it. Go to the malls, go to the movies, uh, go shopping, go to the gym. Uh, as we know, the virus hit us in March as a big surprise. In early March, I was traveling to California and Florida. If I thought somehow Trump knew something about what was going on in this country, I would not have traveled uh, just personally. Right. But what happened is I asked the larger question, not only what did the president know, when right. did he know it, but how did he know it? And I discovered in May that there was this key meeting, January 28th, when it was right. all laid out to Trump. That's what he was talking about. Nope about in February, but I didn't realize that until May. Nope. There is a reporting process. You talk to people, you go back. Uh, I was driving to that question. Mm -hmm. Bob, Why did he say that? Right. Bob, we will all sign the tapes as well in rage. Bob Woodward, we have time for one more question. I want sure. you to speak to the Democratic Party experience. They lost with Hillary Clinton the last time around. What is the urgency of Vice President Biden to run to the middle to November 3rd? Oh, well, that's a, a great question. He's, I mean, he has got uh, the burden of not just the party, but a lot of people feel the burden of the future of the country on his shoulders in Head. And uh, the debate, uh, debate performance tonight is going to be key. People are going to uh, look at that very closely, uh, as they should. Uh, you know, what, what happened in 2016, I'm sorry to be too long here, but the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, failed to see what was going on in this country and Donald Trump did in 2016, and he won. When I talked to him about this and went through uh, what he was seeing and, and what it meant to him, he said, not only did I do it in 2016, I'm going to mm -hmm. do it again. We'll see. Uh, we will see. Bob Woodward, thank you so much. I can't say enough, folks, about the immediacy of rage with the tapes. It begins with Robert O'Brien, and just the first pages are just stunning. Uh, rage, Bob Woodward, of course, of the Washington uh, Post. Jeannie Zeno is with Sionia College, a professor of political science and, of course, a Bloomberg uh, contributor in Cleveland with Kevin Cirilli as well. Jeannie, let me just cut to the chase with your expertise. What will you listen for in the first five minutes tonight? You know, what I'm going to be listening for in particular is does Joe Biden sort of exceed these expectations that have been so lowered by the president and his team? And, of course, 
does the president make a case that he is working in the best interest of the American public and best situated to move us through this pandemic? We've had a million deaths in the world, the United States still leading. And can he hold steady in terms of getting us to where we need to be vis-a-vis -vis the economy? I think those are the two big things. I think health care is going to be the major thing I'm listening for. And of course, there's going to be a lot well of talk about taxes. But Gene, this is really important. And Vice President Biden, I, I believe the language is from Scranton to Park Avenue. How does the gentleman from Park Avenue and Mar-a-Lago, how does he how does he finesse this in an open environment, not an aircraft hangar, but in an open environment in a battleground state? Yeah, it, it, it's the president's got an uphill battle. This is not the story he wanted. And I think we've heard, as you mentioned, Joe Biden's going to be making the case. This is a Park Avenue guy. And this New York Times story cements that, right? He's only paid $750 in taxes in one year. He is not the guy he sold you, to, he told you he was. He is not the businessman he told you he was. He is not the person to lead the country. And I think the president, you know, he, he he's not going to lose supporters. So I think the real question here is can he pull over these undecided voters and there are very very few of them only about five percent according to the polls is joe biden a good debater you know he is not a bad debater and i think he's been undersold in the primary debates let's not forget he was debating you know 10 15 people at once and that's difficult lisa i know you're a debate star that's difficult to do okay she is. no hold on whoa 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 let's just let, hold on i need to set the set the record straight <clears throat> I am not a debate star. Yes, my son is uh, very much into debate. Oh, I, do, I do know, though, Jeannie, that it is the job of the debater, not necessarily the moderator, to fact check. And John was right on that point. Do you think that Joe Biden has the chops, based on his history, to fact check, to deal with uh, you know, anything that President Trump may come up with, which can be mm, different, perhaps, in other types of debates, as well as some others? You know, if I was advising Biden, I would say do not actually fact check. And I agree, traditionally, that's what happens. But Donald Trump has a very good way of getting his opponents off track and off kilter. And I think if Biden tries to go down that path in a 90-minute debate, I think he's going to get himself in trouble. I think Biden needs to focus like a laser beam, COVID, the economy, health care. That's what he needs to talk about. He needs to be empathetic and show that he is a different potential president than President Trump. I think if he tries to fact check, particularly if the president starts talking about his son or his family and gets him in sort of emotional responses, that's not going to be good for Joe Biden. And you mentioned earlier, we know from the research now, this is not as much about what happens tonight as what happens afterwards in these viral minutes. That's what decides voters' views as to how this thing went. He's got to watch out for having a bad right. viral minute. Gene, you're too young to remember this, but you used to go in the voting booth and your father would pick you up and you'd pull the little toggly things, even though your father knew the whole thing was rigged. What is going to be the difference in this debate, given that it is a mail-in voting, including voting happening now across the nation? How will that change the dynamic? 
It absolutely changes it. Let's remember, by the second debate, many people in swing states will have had the chance to vote already. So the, the, the teams have to be cognizant of this, and it does change it. People are making decisions already and in the process of doing that. And so the campaigns have to target for people voting at this point. And you're right, we don't know what the actual numbers of people will be voting by mail, as opposed to the traditional voting in person. We expect there'll be a lot more given that we're in a pandemic. Jeannie, just a final question from me. How does the former vice president handle the Hunter Biden question? Because our experience of seeing him being asked that question, I can't think of a single time that he's really adequately handled it and handled it well. There is no doubt in my mind that comes up later this evening. What's the best way of handling it? You know, I think the best way of handling it is saying he's my son. I love my son. I love my family. This is not about me or my family. It's about the American public. And I can do a better job than you, Mr. President, in terms of handling this deadly pandemic and everything that's to follow. I don't think he should get into a back and forth about family. Jeannie, great to catch up with you. Jeannie Zeno there, Iona College professor of political science and, of course, a Bloomberg contributor. Let's bring in Mike Powell, shall we? BlackRock Global yep. Chief Investment Strategist. He joins us right now. Mike, let's set things up later this evening. What's the approach from BlackRock towards this debate and the election just weeks away? So the approach with respect to the debate, I think, is to just recognize that, you know, at some level to your 3% point earlier, the polling in this race has been very stable in spite of uh, extremely big fundamental news in the United States. And so I don't think we're expecting uh, a ton uh, of market volatility on the back of, of the debate. That said, fundamentally, whether we look out to the presidential election, look to things like, you know, maybe some last gas uh, stimulus negotiations, U.S.-China, the fundamental reasons for there to be market, market volatility, as we've seen in recent weeks, uh, continue to persist. Then, Mike Pyle, how do you frame for Q1 and indeed Q2 of 2021? You look out past this derby, then what? So we think that looking out past this uh, both matters a lot, but also it's important to stay with an eye on the long term. So, you know, one of the things that we're really highlighting to investors is, you know, depending on the election result, let's just take two examples, uh, the Biden unified government scenario versus divided government with the President Biden. You know, that could be the difference on the fiscal stimulus side of upwards of four to five percentage points of GDP over each of the next several years. That could have pretty profound implications for the economy, for the reflation that the economy could experience, and from an asset allocation perspective, we think could matter a lot. So, Mike, how do you position ahead of this election, given the degree of uncertainty depending on the outcome? So we think at the, the top level, you know, on the directional risk call, you know, we would sort of point investors to the long term. And over the long term, you know, elections haven't tended to matter a ton at the index level. But looking beneath the hood, we see real opportunities for a change of leadership uh, in the equity market, depending on uh, what we see uh, in November. So, for example, going back to that point I made around reflation, in, say, a Democratic sweep scenario, the likelihood we could see a rotation uh, away from some of the, the mega caps that have been leading this market towards a more bottom-up rally uh, led by, say, small and mid-cap, that looks to us to be a much more pronounced likelihood in that type of electoral scenario versus some of the others. Mike, it seems to me that if it's a Democratic sweep, if it's a Republican sweep, it doesn't matter. It's still sell treasuries. Is that your take? 
So again, I think this is one of the places where uh, the precise configuration matters. So in a world where we see divided government, where uh, the fiscal policy impulse may be considerably less pronounced, where you could see a premature retrenchment on fiscal policy like we saw 10 to 12 years ago, that's a world where we think that uh, the Treasury market could be uh, subdued and pinned uh, closer to zero for quite some time. In a more reflationary scenario, in a more united government scenario, that's a world where we do expect some uh, curve steepening, some break-even widening, and, and yeah, to your point, uh, Treasuries as a as a less attractive allocation uh, more quickly than not. Mike, right now it's a really difficult moment for investors because we're confronted with the near-term risk, and the near-term risk for many people is a contested outcome, which lasts two, three months, which is why the volatility curve is so elevated going into year-end. And what is clear to me at this point, for many people, consensus view, not my personal one, what matters is not who wins, but that somebody wins. And then we start to think about who the somebody is and what they stand for. What do you make of the sequencing of that? For investors at the moment, Mike? So we clearly think that uh, the uh, risks around a contested election scenario are material and investors are appropriately looking to that. You know, this is going to be an election held under uh, conditions of of historic challenge with the the pandemic uh, going on. And so what we're telling investors is to brace for an election week uh, rather than an election day. But that said, looking out over the longer horizon, you know, we think ultimately investors are going to be rewarded by staying invested through that volatility and, you know, looking to some of these underlying themes that we've been discussing that are going to be much more long lasting uh, than just what happens in November 3rd and and the period of uh, days or weeks beyond that. So where in the income statement do you frame equities? Do you do it at the revenue line? Do you walk down the income statement or is it just impossible and it's a guess forward one year, two years, three years? So I'd say a little bit both and. I mean, I think one of our views is that the conventional wisdom has been a little too focused on the bottom line when talking about U.S. equities, a little too focused on, you know, the the tax impact, the potential regulatory impact in some of these scenarios. And it's going to be very important to look to the top line as well. And we think a world where uh, there's much more ample uh, fiscal impulse, fiscal push, or inflationary push, that's a world that could lift uh, top lines pretty much across the board in the U.S. economy and and really sort of uh, balance out that, that bottom line view. So, Mike, does that mean that you don't see froth in some of the tech sectors in the IPO market that's going gangbusters, uh, that is poised to set a record uh, where the IPOs are popping in the secondary market? None of that's froth to you. So I think what we would say is that those are a set of exposures that uh, have been uh, been benefited by some pretty powerful uh, macro trends. You know, the ratcheting down of discount rates, uh, the transformations that the coronavirus shock has has unleashed. That said, you know, I think we, we think there are scenarios where we could see uh, higher taxes, more significant regulation, in particular focused on the technology and mega cap sector around antitrust, international tax, what have you. And those are the types of scenarios that us that looking ahead to the, the election could change market leadership, both in terms of taking the wind out of the sails of some of those exposures, but also potentially uh, reorienting leadership elsewhere. Mike, brilliant to get you on the program, especially this morning ahead of this debate. Mike Parr there, BlackRock Global Chief Investment Strategist on the market.
Right now, we start strong in this hour. Joseph Quinlan with us with Maryland Bank of America, private bank, and of course, looking at the market strategy of the moment. Joe Quinlan, what is your published strategy right now? I mean, Tom, it is to expect this period of consolidation and volatility in September and October. But on down days, and there's opportunities, now we're, we're still out there buying the life science companies, some of these smaller cap tech companies. The infrastructure plays in and around 5G, e-commerce, electrical vehicles. You know, so we're still we're still buyers because we do expect on the other side of the election we're going to get this fiscal stimulus. We're going to get this package that the markets are pining for. So we're we're selectively buying amongst this period of consolidation and volatility. So Joe, if that's the case, why don't I get the sense that you're piling into the more cyclical parts of this market? We will, you know, John, we are, because we do see the synchronized global expansion. The numbers out of China are better, and that we know that's engineered, of course, by the Chinese, but it has a ripple effects in the commodity markets. Europe is doing its part of Delhi. We've got to deal with Brexit. And as I said, here in the United States, I mean, fiscal policy is going to be what monetary policy was in the last 10 years. It's going to be the backstop. And I think the markets are pining for that. And the politicians will deliver. They have thus far. So, yeah, we're more cyclical bent as we head into 21. Joe, you're a buyer in this turmoil. A buyer with what? With cash holdings that have been sitting on the sidelines? Are you one of those that actually fit into that category? cash, but we're also trimming a little bit more on the fixed income. We have been all year. We're underweight the emerging markets. I think they've got some problems to deal with. So, you know, we still have a bias towards the U.S., but it's also balanced with Japan and the life science companies of Europe. But we, we have taken money out of the emerging markets in the last 12 months and put it to work elsewhere. How are you hedging, Joe? Actually, just, you know, we're telling clients, you know, to be, be investors, not traders. That's kind of our, that's our DNA of our, our client base. And look at the dividend payers. Look through the election. I know there's a lot. The, the media is talking about we're not going to have a, a winner, clear winner the next day, but we will have a winner. We have checks and balances. We have a constitution, and we got great corporations behind us. You know, earnings well, season Joe, Q3 is going to be better. I've got than to expected. jump in, Joe. That one always drives me crazy. Forgive me. It's not a personal attack. The media is not right. talking about it. The market's pricing it. It's in a VIX curve. You can see it, Joe. So you sound in volatility. We see the volatility, but like we were talking before, the, the markets, I think, have already priced in to a large degree a Democratic sweep. They've already priced that in. They've come around to that for the last – that's why we had an ugly September. That was part and parcel of that. So I think, you know, I, I think more of our clients are seeing through the election and want to be on the other side owning good companies. So then what do we own to take advantage of, as John mentions, VIX futures coming in, VIX cash coming in, the general good feeling out there? We have to make choices, Joe Quinlan. What should they be? Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, materials, cyclicals, industrials, some of these financials. You know, some of these companies, you know, they're they're still down, way down from pre-pandemic levels. And I did their good core competencies. They got good cash flow. They got the dividend. So it's the cyclical industrial material side of the equation. So that's like, no. I mean, I, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, but Lisa, that's like Amazon, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. Amazon and everybody other than Amazon. Exactly what he's talking <laughs> yeah. about, Joe. Uh, Joe, the, we, we still like Carrie. we still like life science companies, technology. I mean, there, there's some space there, but. I, 
look at the infrastructure. We, when we get a fiscal package, we're going to get a fiscal stimulus package. A lot of that is going to be spent on infrastructure, infrastructure for 5G, for electrical vehicles, for solar. Not, not, I'm not talking about bridge and levees. I'm talking about real you know, 21st century stuff. So if you like stocks, not such a huge fan of fixed income, what's the 60-40 portfolio for 2020? 70-30? 80-20? Bitcoin. I mean, for your typical, I mean, for your average, for a young investor, I mean, say 35 year old, you know, it's 70, 30. I mean, you know, stocks, fixed income, uh, you know, obviously the more you go out on the age curve, you got to pull it in a little bit here. But if, and it depends on your income needs. If you need the yield, you need to be in the dividends. They're, they're kind of the bond proxies. Um, So it depends on where you're at and your needs and your income uh, desires. Joe, just, just to put a bow on it, if we can, and wrap up this conversation, does tonight matter? Does that debate matter from a market's perspective? Do you think it does, Joe, at all? Yeah, you know, John, I, I, certainly I do think it matters. Um, you know, people have been waiting a long time for this to see how the president performs and also, you know, Joe Biden. So, you know, who gets the upper hand? We'll, we'll see. I mean, can Biden stand up to Trump? I think the answer is yes. Can Trump, you know, move, move the conversation in a constructive way? Yes. So, yeah, it does matter because, as you know, we got these swing states out there. I think the, the polls are tightening more than they're suggesting otherwise. So it's going to matter to the swing state independent voter. Yes. Hey, Joe, great to catch up. Appreciate it. Come back soon, please. Joe Quinlan there, Merrill and Bank of America, private bank head of CIO Market Strategy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.